It's midday on the Rural Radio Network. It's midday just darn near every place that you can hear our voices right now. This is the Roundtable, and uh, we are happy to report that the lost has been found. We have finally discovered the whereabouts of one Susan Littlefield. Welcome back. Thank you very much. I was on vacation, but not vacation. Does that make sense? On vacation. On vacation, yes. You know, most of the listeners know my father passed away in October, and right. we were, uh, my sister and I got to spend three great days together cleaning his house. That can be an adventure. It is. And you know, the loss is found. I have a clown velvet painting from when I was a little girl, and I figured it had been lost over the years, Uh and we found it. Oh, no kidding. (laughs) And it's now hanging in my house, because it was my favorite painting as a kid. Isn't that great? On velvet. How fun. That is so cool. All right. Well, I'm glad that's. Uh, I'm glad you got that all done. I know it was an exhausting time for you, but uh, back at it with your ag team, and I guess uh, lots going on, isn't there? There is. You know, we are actually, that's where I'm headed right now, where the Governor's Ag Conference kicks off this afternoon. I'm going to be moderating a panel of national leaders that come from Nebraska about what it's like to take a national role in agriculture. Mm-hmm. So if you get a chance, that takes place at 4 o'clock this afternoon at the Governor's Ag Conference. Daly will be there all day tomorrow covering the See for Yourself Tour. That's where we've had Bryce for the last couple of days, and he'll continue through tomorrow. So he gives us an update at 12.19. At 12.45, Senator Ben Sass joins Clay as tariffs. And the words we don't ever like to hear, and that's trade wars. Mm. So we'll have more details on that at 1245. Then at 117, I've never been so excited to learn about Greece. <laughs> Not the country, but the grease that you put in your tractors, uh, your planters, your implements, anything that needs to be lubricated in agriculture from a Greece perspective. I spoke to a guy who is even more excited about it than I am. And you're going to learn and be educated at 117. It's hard to believe that someone could be more excited about Greece than you, Susan. I know, but it happens. <laughs> hey, good to have you back. Thank you. Talk to you later. And uh, let's go on over to Jason Jargonson, who's got sports on the mind. Well, even though most of the NCAA bracketologists do not think that Nebraska will get into the NCAA tournament, there is one website that thinks the Huskers stand an 81% chance of getting in. Really? As a number 12 seed. We'll tell you more about that. And, of course, Nebraska head coach Tim Miles thinks the Huskers are headed to the NCAA tournament as well. Five more teams punched their ticket to the big dance yesterday and last night. One of them was South Dakota State. And, of course, one of their best players is Mike Dom, the native of Kimball. He had another big game. We'll get his thoughts about the big victory for the Jackrabbits last night. And uh, a guy who called his fair share of great basketball games at North Carolina, announcer, well, their uh, play-by-play guys passed away, North Carolina Tar Heels. So uh, Woody Durham passed away today at the age of uh, 76. There's a guy who... His voice was on some very, very poignant moments in Tar Heel lore. Yeah, there's a classic for mm-hmm. him. All right, Jason, thank you. And Bob Brogan on business. U.S. stocks are broadly lower. Investors reacting to the departure of Gary Cohn, the top economic advisor to President Donald Trump. And some of the worst losses are being suffered by Caterpillar and such. ADP says small business hiring, though, looks a little bit stronger, so... That's a report from them. They're a payroll provider. All these stories, plus lots more coming up for you today on Midday. It's the time of day we invite 
Paul Perkins back into the control room. Talked a little bit about ag weather. Brought to you by Holdridge Irrigation, your Ranky dealer. Paul, I'm looking at this national map. And except for some small areas in California and what's left in the Dakotas, the whole western U.S. has almost no precipitation at all. Yeah, very dry right now. Um, of course, including our area, about the only storming this going on is in the northeastern part of the country and maybe just a little bit of light snow into central portions of Iowa but otherwise yeah very dry and temperatures warming up nicely right now is there any hope not really yeah just a slight chance of some moisture as we head towards the weekend maybe late next week uh, the forecast is trending above normal in the precipitation and then as we head towards that first day of spring so late next week into that Next week after that, towards first day of spring, we could be looking at some chances at moisture. All right. Well, tell us more. We do have temperatures right now into the upper 30s to low 40s, pretty much over southwest Nebraska, western Kansas, and northeast Colorado. As far east as Lexington and Holdridge, those temperatures in the upper 30s to around 40. But as you head towards northeastern and central Nebraska, temperatures right now in the upper 20s to the low 30s, as low as 23 still at Norfolk. We do have that area of low pressure currently over the Great Lakes. That's a system that was centered over northwest Iowa, bringing us those strong winds on the backside yesterday. That area of low pressure currently over the Great Lakes. High pressure starting to build from the west. We'll be in between those systems today. Still seeing some breezy northwest winds, but luckily not as strong as what we saw the last two days. Skies will be sunny with temperatures about slightly cooler than normal, but still milder than what we saw the last two days. That area of high pressure does move overhead for tonight. That'll give us some light winds and clear skies. That high pressure tracks to the east tomorrow to start up a warming trend as some south winds kick in on the backside for tomorrow and Friday. There is a slight chance of some moisture, probably in the form of some rain, maybe a few snowflakes if it comes early enough in the day on Saturday. That's thanks to the passage of a low-pressure system across the southern plains, but right now it's looking like a pretty iffy chance at any rain and snow for Saturday. Temperatures over the weekend slightly cooler, but still mild. Sunday through Tuesday, we are headed towards a dry and warming trend as the ridge of high pressure builds towards the plains. That ridge of high pressure moves overhead. In our long-term forecast, a good likelihood that temperatures will be warmer than normal in Nebraska and Kansas Monday through the first day of spring, which is March 20th. Cooler than normal air, though, is lurking just up to our west, and that starts to get closer in those later periods, so we'll have to watch for that. The long-term precipitation outlook is mixed early next week. Nebraska and Kansas forecast to see below normal precipitation. That forecast, though, trends above normal precipitation later next week through March 20th. Weather factors driving market decisions include sustained very dry weather in Argentina and favorable weather in Brazil. Today, an intensifying storm along the northern Atlantic coast will produce wind-driven rain and snow. In parts of the northeast, snow and wind will linger into tomorrow. Cold air trailing that storm will result in freezes tomorrow and Friday as far south as parts of Mississippi, Alabama, and Georgia. Late week, that some late week warmth will arrive on the central and southern plains along with the dry weather persisting for at least the next five days. The strong winds the past two days depleted the soil moisture even more in the southern plains wheat areas. To show how dry it is, Dirk, in southwest Kansas, Dodge City has now gone 151 days with no precipitation totaling more than a tenth of an inch. That's 151 days without any moisture totaling more than a tenth of an inch. That is the third longest ever in record, stating all the way back 
1874. Oh, my heavens. Because so, we do, of course, know Dodge City's been around since it's on since, Gunsmoke and since everything. Marshall <laughs> Dillon, of course. Yeah. Dave Thoreau can relate to that one. Well, absolutely. That's his favorite show. Uh-huh. <laughs> but, yeah, 151 days. That's the third longest period ever. And, and that, by the way, is why Festus had such dry skin. <laughs> <laughs> Probably, yeah. <laughs> the, the origins of a bit of a desert down there. That's right. But, yeah, very dry weather for those Southern Plains wheat areas, especially southwest Kansas. No significant changes are expected in the very dry pattern. Towards Argentina, either a variable temperature pattern will offer only slight easing into the drought that's increasing the crop losses. In central Brazil, drier and hotter weather is helping harvest and second crop corn planting. Shower chances do start to increase in the last half of the week. Towards the south part of Brazil, the weather remains favorable for crops and harvest. I'll tell you what, that 151 days. Yeah, this, that's amazing. Wow. But, I mean, so you think that doesn't even... A three-inch snow, two-inch snow, not yeah. even anything like that has occurred for those people. Well, when Dewey and Mike are talking about it being too dry to even rip up the wheat, it's uh, kind of like, you know, people are getting to the point of what's the point? Exactly, yeah. yeah. Really? And, of course, it increases that fire danger uh, hazard there, too. Yeah. Okay, so uh, as we move forward here, it looks like we're getting closer and closer to what looks like spring in any case. So stay tuned. We'll keep you updated on all that. Our weather watch. And Ag Weather brought to you by Holdridge Irrigation, your Ranky dealer. And when you need weather anytime, krvn.com. One of the largest cattle operations in the world is up for sale. We hear from one congressman on NAFTA who's been to both the White House and the trade table. And can President Trump walk away from his proposed tariffs on steel and aluminum? One Nebraska senator believes he can. That's all ahead on the Rural Radio Network. I'm Clay Patton. Australia's largest privately owned cattle company has been advertised for sale. The Consolidated Pastoral Company, or CPC, runs nearly 400,000 head of cattle across 16 Australian cattle stations, spanning 5.5 million hectare acres, and also operates two feedlots in Indonesia. CPC's owner, European private equity firm TerraFirm, has advertised the business for sale as whole or in parts. Northern Territory Cattlemen's Association President Tom Stockwell said the sale would generate interest from around the world. In terms of value, the sale of CPC will dwarf the well-publicized acquisition of S. Kidman and Company in 2016 and currently has a price tag of a billion dollars and, if sold for a billion, will set a new record in Australia's cattle industry. In NAFTA, the latest round of negotiations have concluded in Mexico, and all parties are walking away feeling that some progress was made. But time is starting to get short. The most recent round of negotiations marked the seventh meeting on NAFTA in just seven months. U.S. Trade Representative Robert Lighthizer said completion on NAFTA 2.0 will require agreements on 30 chapters, and so far only six have been completed in just the seven months of talks. Political changes could also shake up the elections as Mexico will have a presidential election in July and the U.S. and Canada will both have midterms later on in the year. Congressman Roger Marshall of Kansas has been to the White House to talk with the president on NAFTA. He's also been to Mexico and sat at the trade table during the latest round of negotiations. Congressman Marshall is confident that a deal can be reached and that Congress will have a final say in the trade. America needs to realize that though the president and his staff are negotiating NAFTA, that the Congress, and specifically the Ways and Means Committee and the Ag Committee, dictate trade policy. And eventually we have to pass this in, in Congress. 
So we wanted to make sure that uh, both countries, Mexico and Canada, as well as our, along with our USTR, understood that, that whatever they negotiate, eventually we need to be able to pass this through Congress. So it was an honor to set by Kevin Brady beside uh, Nebraska's Adrian Smith, and Adrian did a great job as well as Kevin Brady. Just so impressed with the professionalism of all the teams involved, not just uh, the U.S.s, but also Canada and Mexico. I think they are locked in on getting an agreement done. In other trade news, President Trump has created a lot of talk around his proposed tariffs on steel and aluminum. Some in support, like ag group RCAF's push to also put tariffs on beef and pork. Other talk against it, as the EU has said they are ready with their own tariffs on everything from motorcycles to bourbon to meet the U.S.'s proposed tariffs. Still, Senator Ben Sass of Nebraska believes that the president can walk away from the tariffs and restore trade confidence. He certainly can. I've, uh, I spoke with the Canadian foreign minister last week, and they would surely like to walk away from the brink of this. Uh, you know, Canada's got a population of just under 10% of the U.S. population, and so they, they sort of think of themselves as a northern Great Lakes state uh, trading partner in a way, and they would surely not want to lose the producer and consumer benefits to Canada either. And so I think there are a lot of people that would like to walk away from the brink. Words are like bullets, and once you pull the trigger, you can't get them back. I'm Clay Patton. Keep a straight row and keep listening to the Rural Radio Network. It's day number three of the Nebraska Soybean Board See for Yourself trip to the Pacific Northwest. On the Rural Radio Network, I'm Bryce Duskin. Yesterday, Nebraska soybean growers had the opportunity to view firsthand where corn, soy, and wheat is exported from the Pacific Northwest. Temco LLC is a 50-50 joint venture between Cargill and CHS that buys, sells, stores, and handles grain for export from this Pacific Northwest region. Most of the grain that is shipped from Temco arrives via rail from Minnesota, Nebraska, North Dakota, South Dakota, and Canada. Darren Rail is plant manager of Temco. Uh, so here at Tacoma, we mainly load corn and soybeans. Uh, mainly goes to, uh, soybeans go to China. Uh, corn goes to Korea, uh, Japan. Um, so all we do is unload rail cars and go to the ships. And where are those rail cars coming from? Most of our corn comes from uh, the Minnesota, um, North Dakota areas. Uh, soybeans kind of come from more of the Minnesota area. How frequently are you getting rail cars in, and how frequently do the boats go out? Uh, usually through uh, you know September through May, uh, we're usually loading, uh, so we're getting rail cars usually every day, um, usually day and night. We run 24/7. So most of these boats we can load in about three days. Uh, it takes about six shifts, uh, day and night, uh, depending on the rail uh, coming in. But uh, we can unload about two and a half rail car uh, units, train units, uh, a day. The scale is incredible. We think about uh, in terms of farmers, they're hauling 1,000 bushels in at a time on a semi, but tell us about the capacity of these boats. So each one of these boats is about uh, anywhere from 65 to 72,000 metric tons or you know about 2.8 million bushels of grain. Certainly impressive. And you mentioned a couple of those export facilities. Uh, soybeans almost always to China. Talk about the corn location as well. Yeah, the um, beans, uh, China is always seems our big market. Uh, on the corn, though, the Korean and the Japan markets usually are bigger corn markets. It's fascinating talking about the, the employee structure. So tell us about that as well as the ownership is unique. Yeah, I think uh, with, with this facility here, uh, we're a 50-50 joint venture with Cargill and Cenex Harvest States. Uh, so it's kind of the best of both worlds. Uh, we have the ILWU as our labor force. 
Uh, and when we have our Cargill and CHS supervisors that uh, do all the operations as far as the computers and uh, mix and blends. What's great about this location? Uh, obviously, there's a lot of uh, folks moving in and out of here, but why has this worked as a great location to be exporting? You know, for here, it's uh, you know we're not that far from the Pacific Ocean, so we can go up Commencement Bay up the channel and, and be to the ocean in uh, four or five hours. Uh, so it's closer to them Korean and Japan markets. That was Darren Rail, who's the plant manager of Temco LLC. Now, Temco is located at the Port of Tacoma in Tacoma, Washington. It's a major center for container cargo, bulk, brake bulk, autos, and heavy lift cargo. Temco Port was created by Pierce County citizens in 1918, and the Port of Tacoma has become one of the largest container ports in North America and is one of the top 50 in the world. Yesterday afternoon, Nebraska soybean growers had the opportunity to do a little sightseeing around Seattle. They toured Pike's Place Market, which is a marketplace overlooking the Elliott Bay waterfront in Seattle, Washington. The market first opened in 1907 and is one of the oldest continuously operating public farmers markets in the United States. Later today, the group will tour BNSF Railway here in Seattle, Washington, as well as the SSA Marina and the Bollard Locks. You can listen for those reports throughout the day as they happen right here on your local rural radio network station or online at ruralradio.com. From Seattle, Washington, at the Nebraska Soybean Board See for Yourself Tour, I'm Bryce Duskett on the Rural Radio Network. You're listening to Midday on the Rural Radio Network, and it's time to check in for Sports with Jason Jorgensen. Hey, thanks, Dirk. Well, it continues to be a long week of waiting for the Nebraska men's basketball team as they await their fate on Sunday to learn if they'll make the NCAA tournament as an at-large team. While most bracket experts believe NU will not get in, one website with a good history of predicting the tournament, TeamRankings.com, has the Huskers with an 80% chance of making the tourney as the number 12 seed. This week, head coach Tim Miles was a guest on the Big Ten Network, and he's commented the Huskers will be a part of the big dance. I honestly think that, that, that we're in. I mean, I just look at so many things, and the first thing I look at is that a 13-win Big Ten team, there's been 61 of them, all 61 have been in. There's just no bad teams in our league. Nobody outside the top 135 of BPI. There, there's just... You Every game you have to play, you have to win. And you did finish fourth in the regular season Big Ten standings, but does not have a big non-conference signature victory. The NCAA tournament field will be announced on Sunday. David Jenkins dropped in 29 points, and Mike Dom of Kimball added 25 points and 11 rebounds to lead South Dakota State to a 97-87 win over South Dakota in the Summit League Tournament Championship. Dom says this team has been motivated for quite a while. What I think makes it special is our team and how well that we've been so determined since the start of the basketball year. Um, you know, we've looked at each game as just one game at a time. And I think our guys have done such a great job of focusing on the little things that once we got to this moment, we were ready for it. And uh, that's what made it so special for us. Dom and the Jackrabbits are headed to their third straight NCAA tournament. After wearing number 55 for his entire Major League career, Tim Lincecum will switch to 44 with the Texas Rangers in honor of his late older brother. Sean Lincecum's funeral was this weekend, which delayed Tim Lincecum from taking the physical needed to finalize his $1 million one-year contract with the Rangers. The two-time Cy Young Award winner passed the physical and says he will wear that number that his brother used as an amateur. Now, Texas General Manager Don Daniels says a 33-year-old right-hander will be a reliever and could end up as a Rangers closer as he attempts to pitch in the big leagues for the first time since 2016. 
Lincecum has made only eight regular season relief appearances and seven in the postseason. And Woody Durham, the retired voice of the Tar Heels, who called North Carolina football and basketball games for four decades, has died. He was 76. He called games from 1971 through 2011. He worked more than 1,800 games, including 23 Bulls and 13 Final Fours, and his voice was a part of four of their men's NCAA championships in basketball. That's a look at sports. Have a great day. I'm Jason Jorgensen. Stay tuned. More Midday is just ahead. You are listening to the Rural Radio Network. Clear skies in Nebraska tonight with lows in the teens. I'm Dave Schroeder. Advocates who want to expand Medicaid in Nebraska under the federal health care law are launching a petition drive to place the issue on the November general election ballot. A new campaign dubbed Ensure the Good Life will formally announce the petition drive on Friday at the Capitol. If it passes, Nebraska would join 32 other states that have expanded coverage as part of the Affordable Care Act. Nebraska lawmakers have rejected five previous attempts to do so through legislation, and a proposed constitutional amendment introduced this year is stuck in committee. Expanding Medicaid would provide coverage to an estimated 90,000 low-income adults between the ages of 19 and 64 who have no dependents. Governor Pete Ricketts opposes expansion efforts, saying it would draw resources away from other vulnerable groups. Firefighters are looking for hot spots left by a wind-driven wildfire that destroyed a house and burned hundreds of acres as it threatened McCook yesterday. Red Willow County Sheriff Alan Kotchwar also serves as County Emergency Management Director. We've got the homeowner who lost his home uh, looking at his place right now with the fire department, seeing what has possibly survived. Doesn't look like there should be much of anything survived. He's just going to go through and see if there's anything that actually, that family stuff that they, they could possibly save. Multiple southwest Nebraska fire departments responded to provide manpower to fight the fire. Most of the units have been allowed to return to their communities. We've pretty much got uh, most of the other agencies, the volunteer agencies that came in, sent home. So now we're just dealing with Red Bull Rural Fire Department and their staff. They're they're doing hotspot checks and, and uh, cutting down partially or mostly burnt trees. The fire started around 1.30 yesterday on the north side of town and was driven southeast towards the community, burning hundreds of acres in its path. One person suffered burns and was transported to a Lincoln hospital. Meanwhile, crews were battling wind-driven wildfires that have burned about 40 square miles in Kansas. Kansas officials say nearly 50 wildfires have erupted across the state since the weekend, although most have been contained or put out. The fires were primarily across central Kansas. Strong winds have complicated the firefight with gusts topping 70 miles per hour in portions of western Kansas. Our app puts regional, ag, national, and area news just one click away anytime. Reporting from the KRVN News Center, I'm Dave Schroeder. We're talking tariffs and trade wars on the Rural Radio Network. I'm Clay Patton. Joining us to discuss this on the Rural Radio Network is Senator Ben Sass for Nebraska. And Senator, kind of talk to us about what is at stake for Nebraska residents as well as Nebraska ag producers with President Trump's proposed tariffs on steel and aluminum. 
Yeah, I mean, Nebraska is a trade success story, and, and our people are the best advocates for trade because Nebraskans get it. They know we're feeding the world. Um, we're leaving the rest of the world in the dust. Last year, our state was number one uh, in beef exports. Our corn and beans are sent to consumers across the world. We take a lot of pride in the fact that we export uh, lots to Canada, to Mexico, to Asia, to Europe. And I think Nebraskans are saying loud and clear that we can't let our farmers and ranchers get caught in the crossfire of a self-inflicted trade war uh, with Mexico or with Canada. There, there's no such thing as a lovely uh, trade war. Nobody, nobody wins a trade war. Everybody loses. All the data shows that uh, any time we've tried a trade war in the last four-plus decades, American consumers suffer. And ultimately, after the retaliation, uh, lots and lots of jobs are lost in the U.S. So uh, trade is an unbelievable success story for the nation in general, but our state is about the top of the list in terms of being trade beneficiaries. And Senator Sass, you just talked about it right there in that statement, but in recent statements that you've released since President Trump has proposed these tariffs, said the trade wars are never won, they're just lost by both sides. When was the last time the U.S. was in an actual trade war, and uh, do some of the trade wars that you're pulling this data from where both sides lose? Yeah, so um, there, there really isn't any data where you can show huge spikes of tariffs that have been good for Americans. So lots of we, we did a lot of this in the 60s and 70s. We tried to ultimately figure out how when people would panic about a specific bilateral trade deficit, which is really not the right language. We should be talking about trade product deficits. Because usually when we have a trade deficit in terms of making plastic or steel stuff with a country, we have a trade service, services and foreign direct investment surplus that balances those accounts. And so what happens every time you have more trade is that consumers on both sides, uh, both sides of the border inevitably win. Otherwise, they wouldn't be choosing to buy those products. So nobody disputes that consumers win in both countries when there's more trade. But where there's a little bit of confusion is some people think that one side might be winning in terms of jobs and another side losing in terms of jobs. What we've seen in the data for something like NAFTA is that the U.S. ended up with significant net job creation because of NAFTA. But it is true that ag states benefit a lot more than industrial and manufacturing states. And so some of, I think, what motivates the president in this is he has this vision in his head of specific Rust Belt state industrial workers who lose when there's more trade. But here's why the equation is actually quite a bit more complicated than that. On steel, there are about 140,000 steel workers in America, and some of them would stand to benefit a little bit from his tariff plan here. But there are over 5 million U.S. factory workers that work in factories that use steel as an input. And all of those people lose in this scenario. So when you have more trade, you get lower prices and higher quality for consumers on both sides, and you get more net job creation. But sometimes it's in different sectors. And so the president is trying to target steel here. But I think what the White House doesn't really understand is that there are far more, I'm putting it in scare quotes, steel workers who work in factories that need steel than those who work in the actual production of steel. Again, more than 5 million to less than 140,000. So th this is a, a really terrible idea heading down the path toward this trade war. And I think, you know, if the president goes through this, it will indisputably kill U.S. jobs. Canada is our top importer of steel to the U.S. as as well. Do you believe that the president is trying to use this as a negotiation tactic with NAFTA? 
I think possibly. I mean, most of the ways the administration has tried to justify their steel and aluminum tariffs plan is by looking at China. In the case, uh, in the case of China, there is some dumping that's happened, and we should respond to that. But you respond to it in a very tailored, targeted way that uses extant dispute resolution mechanisms so that we don't invite the retaliation that we've seen when they levied tariffs uh, on washing machines and certain kinds of solar panels a couple months ago. Immediately, China responded by hitting sorghum, uh, which a lot of Nebraska farmers grow, and they came straight to my office, panicked about what was happening to their market. But I think you're right that some of what the president thinks he's doing here is trying to sort of get a quote-unquote better deal um, out of Mexico, but that starts with a, a flawed assumption that we haven't gotten a good deal in NAFTA. And the reality is when you talk to Nebraska farmers and ranchers, and by the way, given how deep exporting is in our state, you're not really just talking about farmers and ranchers. Uh, you're talking about retailers and welders and truckers and mechanics and moms and dads at the grocery store who are all benefiting from Nebraska's great trade exports. Um, if the president thinks what he's going to do is drive Mexico and Canada to negotiate a, a better deal, what he really means is less total trade, which means more losers on both sides of this equation. So NAFTA has been uh, an indisputably good deal for America, and we're sort of starting from the assumption that somehow it's been a bad deal, and therefore we're fine if we walk away or they'll give us more back. That's really not the way the trade negotiation works. That's Senator Ben Sass of Nebraska talking on the Rural Radio Network about President Trump's proposed tariffs on steel and aluminum and what it proposes to Nebraska residents and Nebraska ag producers. Keep listening to the Rural Radio Network. Next, we get a review of the livestock futures trade from Joe Teal, Great Plains Commodities. Joe? Yeah, I was kind of... Uh... A different day. Uh, we had cattle closing uh, higher, and feeder cattle closing uh, mostly lower, and hogs lower. In the cattle, uh, we traded both sides of unchanged, uh, and but managed to uh, come back and close higher on the day, but uh, just barely. I mean, it was a pretty uh, choppy, quiet day once again. It sounded like we traded some more cattle at 126, which kind of disappointing. Cutouts at noon were. Just slightly lower on the choice, uh, but uh, there was nothing of any uh, direction uh, anywhere to uh, help the cattle uh, make a, any big move. The uh, feeders finishing lower, uh, mainly because we've seen the uh, index keep coming down, uh, and uh, with the grain prices uh, ha having a pretty good rally here this past month, it's kind of made a squeeze there and. Uh, we're seeing uh, it reflected, I think, in the uh, feeders. Over in the hogs, triple-digit losses in the uh, first three months. And uh, uh, once again, uh, uh, cash about steady. Cutouts, though, lower last night, lower again today. That's caused some concern that we're uh, kind of following a pattern of last year, which uh, saw uh, March not a very good month uh, for hogs. And uh, it's, there's some concern there, and it's being reflected out of the futures right now. So a mixed type of day at the market. Uh, you can contact Joe Teal at Great Plains Commodities, 800-328-0134. This is the Rural Radio Network. So when you look at that tube of grease, do you think, eh, they're all the same? Question is, is it really? 
Hi, I'm Susan Littlefield on the Rural Radio Network. During Commodity Classic, I actually learned they're not all the same. Such a variety of different colors, such a variety of different greases, all having a specific job. I caught up with Andrew Hamilton. He's with Senex as he talks to me about grease. Most of the time, the farmers don't really think too much about the grease until they've run out. And then they're looking for, well, what's the product that they can get? And maybe it looks similar or maybe it's actually... Uh, cheaper price or something like that but they're not really thinking about the the parts and pieces of the grease that really make it important and so what we're doing is we're trying to educate the farmer about the compatibility of the materials the thickeners the thickeners are what are used to take the oil and kind of uh, make it so it is that pasty material we call it the sponge so we think of grease as being like a sponge and when the sponge gets pushed it uh, pushes out the oil and that oil is what does the lubricating but that thickener is not always compatible with other products so we have a compatibility of greases on our website and also on the back of our brochure and it would be available at any Senex uh, carrying cooperative and they can see that there are certain materials that are not uh, able to play well with others. So for instance, polyurea. Polyurea is used in a lot of agricultural equipment, but as you can see on this graph, uh, there's very few others that it would play well with. Um, so the thing is, is that when the farmer goes to get that grease, the most important aspect is for him to know what the thickener of the product he already has in the equipment is. How does he do that? Well, he can look on his tube, most greases will tell you where the thickener is. In this case, it says it's a lithium complex. All other products will have it on there. And he needs to either remember that or take a picture. Whenever I talk to farmers, I tell them, take a picture of what you're using so that when you get to the store or when you get to the cooperative, you can say, this is what I'm using. What do you have that will be comparable with that? The biggest mistake people make is they go for the color. So they see a red color. They say, oh, it's red. It must be the same stuff. And red or green or blue or whatever color is strictly a marketing arrangement. It, it's there because the manufacturer wants to put a color to it, but it has no significance as to what kind of products work with others. Andrew, what are we looking at for loss in equipment time, breakdown time, even having to do replacements of certain parts because they didn't grab the right lubricant? Excellent question, Susan. So when two greases come together that are incompatible, they actually start to attack each other and disassemble each other. And so the two thickeners will start to bond and they'll drop the oil out. And so now what you get is this either flaky or chunky material and it's no longer the smooth, you know, kind of peanut buttery type grease that you're expecting to have in that equipment. And so when that happens, then the farmer starts to hear noises, he starts to smell things, and usually it means metal to metal contact. So when two greases come together, because we haven't paid attention to that important understanding of the thickeners and whether they're compatible, it means that you're going to have a problem and metal to metal contact is probably going to take place. So the most important thing is to stop, think, then grease. Yes, I like that. Stop, think, then grease. You can use that. Thank you, I will. So we, uh, we, we really want people to understand that there's a lot of different greases out there. We have a lot of information about it on our website at www.senex.com. And now you know the difference in Greece. I'm Susan Littlefield, the Rural Radio Network. Dewey Nelson on the Rural Radio Network. Looking at the close today, wheat led the way down along with soybeans. 
corn just fractionally lower. Joining us is John Payne, Senior Marketing Analyst with da Daniel's Ag Marketing in Chicago and publisher of the newsletter This Week in Grain. Well, it's the day before a report, so a lot could happen. Guys getting out of positions. What else happened? Well, really slow day. I think that uh, from a news perspective, we're down, what, one and a half on corn. It feels like we were down about a dozen, uh, given that this is, I think, the first kind of negative close we've had in a while. This is just all expected, pre-report jitters. We've had a nice run-up in corn, a lot of reasons to sell, mainly because, it, again, it should have what you should have done a year ago at this point. So I think guys looking to take profits combined with new spec shorts coming in. We really saw a lot of longs coming out of July contracts, whether it be beans, wheat, or, or, or corn. Um, I think this all gets absorbed here over the next 48 hours, and then we get into next week, and it's, you know, if all these markets fall together, it's, we're back into the acreage battle, and I think the, the, the trade rebounds. And sometimes when a report comes out at that 11 o'clock central time, um, time, maybe they b get back to fundamentals about 15 minutes later. Right. And, in fact, the report really that I think a lot of guys are waiting on is CONAB, and that'll be out tomorrow morning, uh, probably by around the time everybody's getting out of bed. I think maybe 7.30 local time down there is when they release it. So, you know, you might have some news to talk about, or the mar markets might be moving early in the morning on the beans especially, uh, and I think that'll set the tone for the day. If beans come in high down there, I think you probably look for meal and a lot of these old crop contracts to break. Um, but again, I would not be a seller on rat on breaks. I am a buyer on breaks. You look at somebody if you if you have you know maybe played this right where you've gotten out of a of a contract of corn on a rally here uh, in the mid 390s July or high 380s for May. I would be looking to buy breaks in the low 380s for July. I think that nothing has changed, even if the numbers would would come out bearish. You know, this is still. A lot of this is going to be a good global number tomorrow. We'll see corn. Global numbers for corn should be lower. Global numbers for beans should be lower. And that, in my opinion, is the real story, whether or not these individual countries are going to have it. And that just sets us sets us up for the main event that's going to come down the road here in a couple of months, which is the U.S. weather story. Uh, because in, the rea in, in, in reality, the market for corn is, is all about U.S. production. And the wheat trade today on the lows of the day, but uh, there's some underlying support there. Absolutely. I think Chicago is the one that really probably needs to break a little bit um, in the shorter run. But, uh, again, I, I, a lot of these old crop contracts, nothing's changed, whether it be old crop corn or old crop wheat. I'm having a lot of folks out west, south of you guys, telling them that they're getting calls right now for product. And a lot of them don't know if they're going to have it as far as wheat goes. Thanks, John. John Payne, Senior Marketing Analyst, Daniels Ag Marketing in Chicago. This is the Rural Radio Network.